On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking Quentin Tarantino's breakthrough crime thriller for 1992, Reservoir Dogs. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Mr. Pink to my Mr. Brown, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I like the idea that you're the shitty Tarantino, and I'm uh, and I'm uh, the lovely Steve Buscemi. Uh, and, uh, hot take, I did turn to my wife last night and say, is Mr. Pink the hero of this movie? <laughs> I mean, it's a reasonable question to ask. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's a silly one. Like, I don't mean Hero might not be but... the right word, but he's certainly the right guy, right? He's correct yes. in what he's thinking. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so, yeah, I'll take it then, Doug. I'll take it. Also, much Let me like just Tarantino... say, wait, I gotta, I gotta qualify that. He's yeah. correct in what he's thinking outside of his thoughts on tipping. <laughs> oh, 100%. Oh, we'll get into the, all that. But, yes, I'll take it. Uh, you know... <laughs> I, I I'm pretty good, Doug. You know, I I am what I, I am what I am, and I is what it what I is. You you yam what you yam. You're a, yeah, you're a you're a Popeyeing over here on this yeah. episode. <laughs> what do you think about Popeye, Liam? Um, I don't know. I I like the movie, right? The uh, the Robert Altman one. The Robert Altman one. I thought that was pretty fun. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, though. Maybe I'll feel differently. But when I first saw it, I thought it was fun. Uh, as a cartoon, though, I've always been kind of like, they're fine. They're just not – I've never found them as charming as Looney Tunes. But I, I feel like they might be less racist than Looney Tunes. So, I mean, but, I, I'm sure that that is not necessarily true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember, right? Like, I don't, I don't have a perfect memory of it. But I don't I, – I can't remember a single gag from Popeye. But I can remember multiple gags from Looney Tunes cartoons that still make me laugh. I love that there's like a 40-year period where 98% of cartoons is here's one person or thing or animal and there's another and it's just them being violent to each other. That is just well, – like the whole purpose of it is like, what's the most creative way this person can beat the living shit or like attempt to murder the other one? And it just never gets old. I'm still pretty high on that. I'm not being facetious. I love that. Sounds cool. Yeah, but they – you know, what about um, – what's his name? Uh, the Popeye, the guy who likes hamburgers. Wimpy. Nah, I'm good. Not, not a big wimpy guy? <laughs> no, I don't. No, nothing about Popeye really ever stuck with me. Like, I I did watch a, a chunk of, like, Woody, Woody the Woodpecker. I kind of remember some of that stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, there we and, go. Uh, and, of, and Chili Willy, of course. You know, like, what, what's the song? Like, uh, they call me Chili Willy. I'm frozen through and through. Something. How about something Droopy? Are you a Droopy guy? I don't remember. So I've well, I seen, love Droopy. I can see the picture of Droopy, but I don't remember any Droopy cartoons. <laughs> I remember yeah. like Tom and Jerry stuff. Uh, like yeah. Tom and Jerry and Looney Tunes. I remember. I don't remember any Disney shit at all. Like, huh. like <clears throat> I don't mean like the major motion pictures, but like the shorts, the shorts. I, I can't. I've How watched the ghost one, the one where uh, uh, Donald and Mickey and Goofy are going and checking out that haunted house. Ghosts. Maybe, maybe. I don't. I, <laughs> what about I the one where they're they're like living in like a a camper van thing? You remember that one? None, nothing, <laughs> nothing. I'm just gonna list all the Mickey Mouse cartoons. I actually have a lot of memories of all those cartoons. Apparently, I, uh, for some reason, I don't. I don't think they were as available to me. Like there was mm-hmm. some 
UHF, it's an American thing you wouldn't know about, show. I've seen the Weird Al movie. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that there, there was some place where they were showing Looney Tunes, right? It wasn't just that I had them on tape, you know. Um, but I don't remember seeing many Disney cartoons uh, when I was a kid. Liam, since our last episode, uh, we've seen the premiere of a new television show called Bupkiss on the Peacock streaming service. I was going to bring is... it up. I was so glad that you brought it up instead. Well, I, it was created and stars... Pete Davidson, alongside Joe Pesci and Edie Falco, and uh, the show has been described as a heightened, fictionalized version of Pete Davidson's life, mm-hmm. being compared to Louis C.K.'s Louis and Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Have you seen this program, Liam? Uh, uh, oh, yes. I'm about four episodes in, five episodes oh, in, something like that. Interesting. How are you enjoying it? It's fucking great. Hey! The, f- the, the first episode is so stupid and gross that even though it was funny... I thought, I don't know if I'm going to stick with this show. Like, that's cool. I like some of what they did with this. But I just feel like maybe this isn't going to go anywhere because there's not a lot of humanity in that first episode. And then it just turned a corner. And episode two was great. Episode three was better. Episode four was awesome. Yeah, I think I've only seen the first four. So maybe the show taps off at some point. But there's definitely an episode where he's hanging out with his uncle – Right. And uh, he I think it's his uncle. It might be an older cousin, but I think it's his uncle. And he's flashing back to when he was at his uncle's wedding. And that episode, A, was clearly real. Uh, It really represented parts of his life. It it didn't feel fictionalized uh, or or, not that it wasn't fictionalized, but it felt more related to who he is as a person. Sure. Um, And B, it made me cry a couple of times. Wow. Yeah, it was. Especially because, like, the to give you an idea, when I say, y'all, that the, the first episode was kind of gross, at one point, uh, Pete is in his basement, which, in the show, and I don't think this is false, but it might be, he lives in a completely finished apartment that is just in the basement of his mom's house. I, I've, I've heard that before, yes. Yeah, so that's where he is. And he is watching porn on his VR headset. <laughs> and, All he's, right. and he's really into it. He's getting really so, into the Just porn. to stop you for a second, is he playing Pete Davidson as a success, like as someone who's famous? He is someone who's famous living okay. in his mom's basement. Okay. And he is watching VR porn, and he has decided to jerk off. Yes. And his mom still does his laundry, and she knocks and doesn't hear him say anything. So she comes down, and not only does she walk in on him jerking off to the porn, Doug, he comes on her. Whoa! Hey! And that, and that is the beginning of the first episode of the series. What? So set the tone. <laughs> you set you you set that tone. I think okay, we're not in the real world. We're just gonna tell jokes. That's fine. And I'm not saying that that's a bad show, but it's you know I'm not gonna yeah. have any emotional connection. Sure, sure, sure. We, we basically started watching it only as something silly to watch in between more emotionally challenging stuff. And uh, I think the wedding episode is maybe the third episode, and I fucking cried, man. And I was like, fuck you. How is this all the same show? Like, they really are, by just telling the truth of the situation, they really are sort of, like, getting at some interesting stuff while huh. still being very silly. I mean, there there's an episode that I know is real, which is there's a picture of him that he hates, and he's trying to find whoever keeps putting it on his wikipedia and all that feels very real (laughs) until the big reveal of who it is which i won't spoil for people which is clearly fake and you're like okay here's where we got funny with the plot but the idea that he maybe he did try to find who was putting this fucking picture up so he could fuck them up yeah i I actually believe that that's real i think that's real 
I, I mean, there's very good reasons to not enjoy the work of Louis C.K. I can't watch his stuff anymore. No, but done. one of the things that Louis, the television show, what made it special was that it was willing to not be funny. Right. It was willing to go into places and go for extended periods where it was not like chasing the joke. And that's something that maybe this kind of show would mature into if that's what he wants to do. What do you think of Pete Davidson? I mean, I like him. I don't know. I don't. Other than the fact that people love his ex was Ariana Grande. Other than that relationship sort of poisoning people against him. I don't understand the general hate for Pete Davidson. Sure. I, I think he doesn't maybe have the range when it comes to SNL that people wanted. Like, there's so many people on that show that do a million characters, and Pete just has, like, two things he can do. Sure. But I've seen his stand-up. It's pretty fucking funny His stand-up is good, I have to say. Yeah, and and now with this show, he's not the only one writing it, but he is letting them fictionalize his life in a way where, on one hand, he is defending himself. Why does everybody hate me? But also, he's more than willing to accept that he's a fucking asshole. Like, like he just doesn't understand why everyone takes him being a dickhead personally, right? Like, there's so much personal vitriol. And so one of the themes of the show is he just doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why. He understands that he is fucking weird and that, you know, he's not like a real adult. But uh, but he doesn't quite understand why the whole world has taken that fact so personally. It's funny because, like, so many very funny people seem to love him. Right. Yeah. Like, like just love him personally. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, well, that's that's a good vouching for right, a person is yeah. is that they find him funny anyway. I don't want to stick too much into that. I do want to ask quickly. I, I did read that uh, David Howard Thornton, who plays Art the Clown in the Terrifier horror films, shows up on an episode. Is that did you have you seen this episode? I don't know if I have or not, because okay. I haven't it's watched it. It's weird Terrifier. that you wouldn't know, <laughs> but you know who Wait. the fucking clown in Terrifier is. Oh, he shows up as the clown. Yeah, I think so. Oh, then I haven't seen it. No, okay. I haven't seen the class. I, just, I thought you meant he showed up as not the clown. Oh, yeah, like, I wouldn't know what he looks Yeah, like. I don't know what he looks like. But I have seen the episode with Steve Buscemi. That's the wedding episode. Yes. And the whole point, so for people who don't know, one of the things on the show that I think is true in Pete's life is at least the character on the show, his dad died in 9-11. He was one of the firemen right. who was trying to save people, and he died. And... uh the wedding episode is he goes to his uncle's wedding and it's like two weeks after 9-11. Oh, shit. Okay. And this is real. There are pictures in the episode of him at the actual wedding that they're fictionalizing for the show. And at the wedding, he's just he's going back and forth, being kind of sad and then being kind of silly. And at a certain point, he's clearly just acting wild because he's working at his emotions. Sure. Yeah. And an old priest played by Steve Buscemi is like, let me take you know, let me handle this. I'll talk to him. And it's the most fucking nightmare shit. It's such a psychotic thing that Steve Buscemi does as his character. It's so fucking good, Doug. I cannot. Oh, wow. Okay. That episode alone, just for Steve Buscemi giving him what he thinks is an inspiring speech, that's really a goddamn nightmare. It's so good. It's so goddamn good. And it made me just love Steve Buscemi because he's the only person who could pull off like, I think I'm being very important and inspiring, but actually, I'm very awkward, and I'm making you very uncomfortable. It's the perfect Steve Buscemi role in my mind. And Buscemi's, of course, his connection to 9/11 must be, you know, I don't know uh -huh. if that plays into why he's there. You sold me on it. I'm definitely going to check this out. I mean, the cast is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. even outside of the the family, this uh, Joe Pesci and stuff like that. Like, the, I looked at the list of people who have appeared on the show, and it's yeah. ludicrous how many famous people are there. I mean, he he made an episode. He has an episode where he's at a conference. That's run by Al Gore. Al Gore is in the episode. And right after Al Gore shows up, him and Jon Stewart riff making fun of Al Gore in very disrespectful ways. And I thought, 
I thought, wait, does Al Gore actually have a sense of humor about himself? Because holy shit. <laughs> Did you know that Al Gore's daughter was one of the writers on like prime Futurama? She's a comedy writer. No, I had no idea. Maybe That's that, why maybe, he appeared on Futurama. Maybe she talked him into it because he like 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 I don't want to ruin the joke. There's so much stuff I want to talk about, Doug, but I don't want to ruin the jokes for people. <laughs> we already have ruined it pretty significantly. No, trust me. I that one bit. Literally, that's the first five minutes of the first episode. It gets so much weirder than that. That is nothing. Anyways, Sorry. people should check out the show. It's fun. Yeah, I think that unless the, I guess you hate Pete Davidson, then I guess don't check out the show. I don't have strong feelings about anything now that I think about it. Uh, Liam, big controversy. You're gonna be really excited about this. People on the internet, Liam, are up in arms about Rob Marshall's live-action remake of Disney's The Little Mermaid. Now, uh, The Little Mermaid was a 1989 feature-length cartoon. Uh, It marked the start of the uh, 90s golden age for Disney animation, The Lion King, Aladdin, etc., etc. But this this remake has been controversial, as has a lot of the recent Disney animated-to-live-action remakes, because it looks like shit like garbage like uh absolute garbage and one of the things people are upset about is the character of flounder now liam have you seen the little mermaid before oh yeah quite a few times okay what's your favorite song <laughs> i hate all the songs i hate them. <laughs> well i believe all the songs are included plus more in this so that's not great for you but flounder, and, and, but not of her singing which is to me if you're going to add more songs let's get more of ariel singing so we can appreciate how great her voice is and instead she spends most of the movie not with no voice it's fucking stupid yeah, it's well, oh, oh, I mean, very strong feelings already coming across. But this character of Flounder now, Flounder is a fish friend of Ariel, the Little Mermaid, the titular Little Mermaid, right? Well, in the live action, it's funny that I say live action because Flounder has been brought to life through the magic of computer animation, and he looks a little funny, he looks a little more realistic, and people are upset about this, Liam. In fact, some pe- people have described this uh, this Flounder as looking like. Steve Buscemi, do you uh, do you see that? No, fuck those people. That's that's fucked up. Yeah, it's just because he comment. has it's just because he has fish eyes. He's got fish and, eyes, and people think that Steve Buscemi's eyes are crazy looking. But like, lots of people have, you know, bigger eyes. It's it's unfair to our man Steve, who is very handsome and does not look like a fucking fish in my mind. Plus, yeah. the idea that they would, I get it. If if your thing is we shouldn't make realistic looking versions of cartoons. That's stupid. I'm with you. But if you're going to say, that's fine, they should just give this fish fat cheeks. I'm sorry, y'all. Fish don't have fat cheeks. That's not a thing. It's not a hatred of different weight sizes to display a fish the way that fish look. This is just how fish look. They don't look like flounder in the cartoon. It's just it doesn't make sense that people are so bummed on this aspect of it. Just be bummed on the whole idea, which was a bad idea in the first place. The reason you draw cartoon characters the way that they draw Flounder is to make them more fun and cute and relatable. Cheeks are cute. We like cheeks. If we liked fish, if fish had cheeks, we would like them more and maybe eat they them do. Less. Liam, I grew up eating cod cheeks, so I know that they. They do don't have, have fat cheeks though, no. like like Flounder in this movie. Flounder in this movie in the original cartoon. No fish looks like. I mean, he looks more like one of those. Um, what are those like? Uh, the fish that look like they have a weird face, the little squidgy. Oh, I know what you're talking about, but yeah, not yeah, the, yeah. the time. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at Flounder from the cartoon now. If you took off his fins and like you just took him away, it's almost like a human head that he has. It's very yeah. strange. 
Um, That's how cartoons work. That's why yeah. no one wants these fucking realistic cartoons. It's like with the thing with The Lion King. The Lion King was still a cartoon. It wasn't live action. It was a cartoon. But it was just a realistic computer cartoon, which fucking sucks. Nobody wants that. Why would anyone want that? It's a psychotic thing to suggest, let's do this. This, this is going to be good. But what about Rob Marshall? He's the director of The Little Mermaid. I mean, don't be wrong. I have to go see this thing because I have a six-year-old daughter and she wants to see it. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm fully in support of of you know the actress who's black Ariel. But this is the this is the, this is <laughs> <Did> the, <I? laughs> because Sorry. she's great. She's great. But all the reviews are like the movie sucks. She's great. So like, yeah. uh, awesome. I'm glad that you found an actress who's awesome and can sing. That doesn't make the movie good. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I, it's such a bummer to me because now this woman's career, she had to fight so hard. Like people had to fight so hard for the idea that like it's okay that Ariel's not white, and then it's wasted on a movie that sucks. Like it's like who cares? They could have made her anything. It doesn't matter. The movie's a piece of shit. So who cares? Like that really bums. That part bums me out. It really bums me out. And uh, side note, I haven't seen it yet. I have heard from people who've seen it. That there's also some pushback because, like, supposedly they made the whole film woke, you know, in this in whatever pejorative Republican way. They what? Like they that, woked up the Little Mermaid. That's what people think, and and <laughs> and they're like they made it less sexist. And now yeah, it's I think it, yeah, yeah. And yeah, kiss the girl. They the lyrics. All the reviews that I've read are like, no, it's as sexist as ever. Everyone's crazy. There's it's it has lost none of its sexism. It's just lost all of its charm. You know, previously it was a very patriarchal movie that's kind of charming, I guess, if you don't find the music to be torture, which I do. Does, I got a question for you, Liam. Does that priest still pop a boner? <laughs> uh, here's my question. Um, why couldn't they find an actual Jamaican person to do the voice of uh, of Sebastian? That's what You I don't like Debbie Diggs? But there are actual Jamaicans, though. That's do you think it's because Lin-Manuel Miranda is involved with the music and, of course, his connection with... David with Hamilton? Sure, whatever. I don't know. I'm just asking questions, man. I'm so shook by this uh, discovering that this is a woke property. It just, it really upsets me. (laughs) I just think it's so funny, like, that people are, like, really, the idea that anyone would say, like, they can't take the sexism out of My Little Mermaid. Also, can we just talk about something here, Doug? Please. Are you familiar? Finally. Are you familiar with the original story of The Little Mermaid? Yeah, it's all fucked up, right? Yeah, well, because it comes from a legend, yeah. and part of the legend of mermaids, whether we're talking about the ladies or the dudes, is that they they kill people, Doug. They, these are these are fucking sea predators, man. They're I saw the buddies. lighthouse. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're not our friends, right? And so the, yeah. the point of the original story is that a thing that should destroy us falls in love, and it turns out to be a tragic thing. And now, instead... We got this fucking weird patriarchal thing. In, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there, it's just, it seems strange that we're like, I don't know, man. Like, it just seems like they can't get the Little Mermaid to have the right tone. And I'm like, the tone was bad from the start. Like, what, what do we think we're going to get out of this that's going to be like, like, just leave it alone and move on? Like, why are we still just, trying to do it? Just re release the guinea pig film Mermaid in a Manhole into theaters, uh, something a little more accurate to how mermaids actually are. And everyone will be happy. That's not woke. That's not woke, Liam. Liam, speaking of woke, we've talked a bit over the past few episodes about Steve Buscemi's upcoming directorial effort, The Listener, has recently announced that it will be showing at the Tribeca Film Festival running June 7th to 18th, which should be right around the time that this episode drops, in New York City. 
Uh, this year's festival is very heavy on performers usually known for acting, directing films, including Chelsea Peretti's first-time female director, John Slattery's thriller uh, Maggie Moore with uh, Tina Fey and John Hamm, and David Duchovny's Bucky fucking Dent. Uh, but we're uh, we're also going to have the listener there. Are you going to be traveling to New York City to check out some of these films? No, no. But I am curious. I'm I I love that concept of the listener. Uh, I'm really interested in seeing Steve Buscemi do some directorial work again. So I'm looking forward to that. These other films. I mean, maybe they'll be good. Maybe they'll be bad. Uh, I like Chelsea Peretti. I like John Slattery. David Duchovny. I heard is kind of a dick, but whatever. <laughs> as long as it's not woke, that's fine. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Liam, we're here today to talk about Reservoir Dogs from the year 1992, a landmark film for me personally. Uh, it was a, it's, in some ways, it's a very defining film. It's like one of those defining films of the 90s, for, for better or for worse. I don't want to get into the film yet. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about it. But I do want to ask you, do you remember the first time you saw Reservoir Dogs? I wouldn't say I have a full memory of it, but I do know it was after Pulp Fiction because I... Pulp Fiction was my in. I saw that. That sure. was like a moment for me and for a lot of people. And then when I found out he had done another movie before Pulp Fiction, I said, well, I got to see that. And my first experience with Reservoir Dogs, I, I, I rented it on video and I watched it alone and I fucking hated it. Interesting. I felt like it was a bit boring that huh. there was a lot of yelling for no reason that I didn't think was going anywhere. When, and for, when, you, when it comes to you and yelling for no reason, you prefer it to be set to music. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically. And uh, and for whatever, and for some reason, I found the ear cutting scene mm-hmm. really fucked up. And not what's weird about that, Doug, is as we've talked about in the show before. I grew up watching horror movies, so what was it about the ear? They don't show you him cutting the ear. But it like emotionally fucked me up. I when mean, I was you a weren't kid. the only one who had that reaction. Rick Baker walked out of the screen. So did Wes Craven. It was a, so upsetting. It was so upsetting to me as a kid. Uh, I watched it with my wife last night, and I did not even cringe or look away. It, it had no effect on me whatsoever. But I remember just being like, "This is you know uh, one of the things about Pulp Fiction is that not just." Um, what it represented for a lot of people, indie film, a bunch of seventies film references. I didn't know cause I didn't know seventies film, sure. interesting music choices, redemption for fucking John Travolta, all that stuff. Yes. That was all there for me. But another thing was that it was because I didn't have a deep ties to exploitation in high school. I didn't know movies that pushed the envelope of good taste this far. Right. right, 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 and so especially me, in the mainstream, right, like yeah. that moving into mainstream film, right, yeah. yeah, and so for me, that was that was the furthest I had gone into that much, quote unquote, bad taste, and I loved it. Thought it was great. With Reservoir Dogs, I think be, something about that ear scene, as well as some of the dialogue here and there, I was like, this is it. This is my limit. This is officially too far, and I don't like this, right, mm-hmm. and. uh I felt that way pretty consistently. I watched it again a couple times just because other people loved it. So I gave it a chance. It still wasn't into it. And it wasn't until like my later 20s, early 30s, I watched it again, sort of out of a, you know, Tarantino sort of back putting stuff out and people care about him again. I'm going to like give Reservoir Dogs another chance. And I did. And I thought, well, that was great. I don't know what my deal was. I don't know why I didn't like it when I was a kid. That's a great movie. I got I, I thought it was I thought it was great when I was like 
27. I was like 27, 28. I rewatched it and was like, I was wrong. This is great. And I could not figure out why I had completely turned on it when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17, something like that. Sure. Huh. Interesting. Well, I guess we're going to find out what your current thoughts are in just a little bit. I'm just going to tell you how I was introduced to Reservoir Dogs. I actually did see it before Pulp Fiction, just before, even though I was young. I was 13 when I saw it. The movie came out in 1992. Here's how it happened, Liam. I was, uh, when I was in my early teens, uh, spending a lot of time on BBSs, bulletin board systems, like online ones, and learning about the world through uh, the conversations that were happening in Newfoundland on these BBSs. And I went to a BBS meetup, Liam, for a BBS called Line Noise. And uh, at I, I brought along a movie to watch, the original Evil Dead, which I was obsessed with when I was 13, 14 years old. But we did not watch Evil Dead. We were instead going to sit down and watch a movie I've never heard of by a person I'd never heard of with actors I had never seen or heard of in anything before. We sat down and watched Reservoir Dogs, and I was, like, excited by it, especially because I was surrounded by people who were way older than me. I probably shouldn't have been there, to be honest. Uh, and, I like, I didn't understand entirely what I was watching, but I was kind of, like, excited and almost titillated by it a little bit. The violence, I don't remember having much of an effect on me, um, mostly because, I don't know, maybe I was just distracted. Who fucking knows? But I remember liking it, but not even understanding what it was called until years later when I'd seen, you know, by that point, I knew Quentin Tarantino and what he was all about. Uh, So I've seen it many, many times since then, to the point where revisiting it for this podcast, it's one of those things where you know every beat of it. You know what I mean? Where you just remember all of it from start to finish. So you kind of experience it in a different way. And, well, you know what? I'm not going to tell you how I felt. I'm going to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk all about it. 1992's Reservoir Dog. Put the gun down! Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling of something. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I'm so scared because I'm falling the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. It's so hard to keep the smile from my face. You're acting like a first-year thief. I'm acting like a professional. And your family. When a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. It's 1992's Reservoir Dogs, directed by Quentin Tarantino. This was his first completed film, uh, though you can also find 1987's My Best Friend's Wedding out there in incomplete form. He would go on to make Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, you know who. Quentin Tarantino is written by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, uh, who worked with Tarantino at the Video Archives Video Store, where he cut his teeth. He also went on to direct and, and write The Rules of Attraction, and with the write the screenplays for Silent Hill and Beowulf. He currently co-hosts the Video Archives podcast with Quentin Tarantino. Um, there's a lot of really interesting aspects to the story of how Quentin Tarantino ended up making this film, uh, Liam. And I was listening to a commentary track 
that technically is a Quentin Tarantino commentary track, though he's never actually done one for the film. They edited together interviews with different people involved with it and made sort of like an audio documentary. It was released on the 10th anniversary DVD set of Reservoir Dogs. And it's very interesting to hear some of it. I'm not going to kind of go over a lot of that territory. It involves, you know, Quentin Tarantino had hooked up with Monty Hellman, the director. Monty Hellman was going to direct Reservoir Dogs. But the interesting part of it that I never really realized is that one of the main reasons Quentin Tarantino directed Reservoir Dogs has to do with Tony Scott because Tony Scott wanted to buy the script for Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. And because Quentin Tarantino sold the the, uh, the screenplay to True Romance, it meant that he had both the leverage and the money to do Reservoir Dogs, like to say, I'm going to direct it, right? He had that level of leverage. And, you know, his original idea was that he was just going to direct it on 16 millimeter uh, with him playing Mr. Pink and like having a very, very low budget. But it kind of gave him a little bit more flexibility to tell Monty Hellman, hey, I'm going to direct this instead. And that likely wouldn't have happened otherwise. Now, I know, I think we're both in agreement. We're not big true romance fans. Is that correct, Liam? Yeah, I liked it at the time, but on rewatch, it's it's kind of a nightmare. Yeah, and I wonder if that is is, is similar to how your feelings are on Reservoir Dogs. But we'll get to that in just a second. Starring, of course, Harvey Keitel as Mr. White, uh, Tim Roth as Mr. Orange, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi. Edward Bunker, and Quentin Tarantino himself as Mr. Brown. As I said uh, before, he originally was going to be Mr. Pink in this film. And I sometimes imagine a world where that was going, that ended up happening and how different this film and his career would have been. Steve Buscemi came in to read for it. Tarantino said that his reading wasn't that good, but he was familiar with Steve Buscemi beforehand for some of the roles that he'd seen him in already. Uh, And um, Buscemi, even though he didn't blow him away, he actually took Steve Buscemi aside before he did the audition and said, and he said, like, this is like a shitty thing to do, that he wrote this for himself, that he's going to have to do a killer audition in order to get the part. And even though he didn't, he gave him the part anyway. Uh, he wonders, actually, Tarantino wonders if maybe it's because he took him aside, it kind of shook him a little and made it a little more difficult. Apparently, Seymour Cassell, uh, who we've seen in The Soup with Steve Buscemi, him and Steve Buscemi went to this audition together with Buscemi auditioning for Nice Guy Eddie initially and uh, Cassell auditioning for Joe. I bet that would have been a... Uh, much easier set with Seymour Cassell as opposed to Lawrence Tierney, because apparently Lawrence Tierney, as in every movie he was a part of, was a complete fucking nightmare. You ever heard of these uh, Lawrence Tierney stories before, Liam? No, never. So Lawrence Tierney plays Joe Cabot in the movie, uh, old school tough guy actor from the 50s and 60s. But in like this period, he appeared on Seinfeld as Elaine's father. Everyone says that he was a nightmare, but like hide a gun on himself, terrorize everybody. He did a voice on The Simpsons in the 90s as that security guard who tries to yeah, catch uh, Bart. Yeah, 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 and yeah. apparently he was he absolutely terrified. Everyone on set there was a complete nightmare. When they were making this, like I once said, it's like casting Lawrence Tierney in your first movie is like jumping right to hard mode. He just is apparently just – he doesn't remember his lines. He goes out and fucking gets in fights in between. I think he was in jail before one of the scenes here. I mean he just is – seemed like uh, the wildest Hollywood character. But – uh Let's get away from him, even though we'll come back to some of the performances in just a second. Liam, you've already kind of hinted at it a little bit. What did you think of Reservoir Dogs? You know, Doug, I, as I said, I hated this movie and then I love this movie. Watching it for this, I kind of went in a little skeptical just because I've soured a little bit on Tarantino in general. Um, I don't know that I'm quite on the boat. We, we know people who feel that Tarantino is so derivative of other filmmakers yes. that there's nothing there. There's nothing there to appreciate. It's like a remix. Uh, 
side note, I fucking love remixes. Though. That's a terrible analogy. Like, I don't care. I love derivative stuff. Like, I, I something being uh, a hodgepodge of other influences is not a bad thing. That's a whole genre of music that I think is great. So, like, that in and of itself isn't a thing for me. However, it does start to feel like he is treading a lot of the same themes. And there's a certain feeling for me that his dialogue is it, it gets a little excessive um and it, it's a little bit of like i don't know sort of like a weird pseudo intellectual like i have this pop culture point and i'm going to insert it into the movie just because i i need to have it in the movie sure um i still do find some of the movies charming i don't think he's truly dealt with race i get you know famously samuel jackson is pretty comfortable with all the uh, N-words in the movies because he's like, well, that's how white people really talk, right? And so good on Tarantino for depicting it. But I don't know. It just it's it just starts to feel like Tarantino wants to deploy racism as just like a fun, gritty element to make things feel more on the edge. And it's just all of it's become tiresome for me, Doug. It has lost some of its charm. Uh, over the years. So going in, I was thinking, oh, I might not be into this because I've just not enjoyed his movies as much lately when I've watched them. I got to say, though, there are some undeniably charming elements of a movie that is filled with gross. Ne- you know, a lot of this movie is anger, uh, stereotypes, uh, racial and sexist, awful things. Sure. And with all that grossness. It's funny how much of this is funny. I watch this with my yeah. wife. Mm-hmm. She cringes at every N word, every B word. Like she is not into any of that aspect of the movie. Right, right. We both laughed out loud multiple times at this movie. There's just a lot of charming shit in the movie. Not the least of which is Harvey Keitel in the scenes. He's not just yelling. I will say <laughs> towards the middle of the movie, the yelling starts to get a little excessive in the warehouse. Just too much yelling. But, like, like here's the thing. So uh, for those people who haven't seen it, which I was imagine is no one. but just Nobody. Come but I'll just, I'll just do the setup. The whole beginning of the movie, for me, on this view, is bullshit, right? We've got the Tarantino character doing this long, sexist thing about like a virgin that I think is meant to just show us that this guy sucks in some way, but also is, like, making a point that maybe Tarantino actually thinks. So that whole part was... Kind of gross. And then Steve Buscemi goes on this long rant about tips. And while that scene does give us the idea that these people don't really know each other and sort of kind of the the kind of people that they are, it also is just it goes on so long. And honestly, the most charming part of that whole breakfast scene is Harvey Keitel and um and uh the, the and Joe Joe interacting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only and it's like two seconds of an extended scene. The whole thing, I, I mean, there's a couple of times when other people are talking and you see Harvey Keitel's face and he's doing so much acting while not saying anything that you're like, Keitel's fucking killing this scene and he hasn't even said anything yet. So, like, there is some of that going on. But for the most part, it's tedious. <laughs> the whole thing just wears me out, Doug. And then there's the title sequence, which I hate all that slow motion bullshit. It sucks. It's stupid. He should regret it for the rest of his life. And then we cut, and then we cut to the car. And Harvey Keitel holding, um, uh, oh fuck, Tim Roth. It's okay. Tim Roth. Thank you. Holding Tim Roth's hand, which by the way caused my wife to turn to me and go, 
whatever happened to Tim Roth? And I had to tell her about the truly upsetting film Resurrection that came out, uh, what was that, last year uh, that Tim Roth is in? It's it's a real upsetting one, but it's really good. He's really good at it. Uh, he's in the back. He's bleeding out. Harvey Keitel is holding his hand, and he goes, you're going to be okay. See, I've, I've seen this movie so many times, I can remember the rhythms of everything that he says. That, Say that, the goddamn words. But when he sings okay, specifically, <laughs> that moment I went, Oh, right. This movie is also awesome. Like, I, I, there are so much parts of this movie that I find so fucking tedious. For example, let's cut from the well, first. Well, no, 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 let's not make a list of tedious things. That's not what we're. We'll I want to make a list of tedious things because it's important to me, Doug. But I just want to say just about that moment. Yeah. One of the things that's, I mean, there are revolutionary aspects of this movie. I, yeah. And I, I don't think that that's, that's overstating things. The fact that that relationship um, between the Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth character. That while he's bleeding out in that back seat, like it, there's this like love and tenderness between these men, and that it's vocalized, and that he's trying to comfort him, but he's also trying to show love to him. And honestly, when they get to the area as well, and he says like, "Will you please hold me?" Like that shit is like that shit was not done at the time. Not in, not in Hong Kong movies either. It just was not done. Like it, that went beyond heroic bloodshed into something I had never seen before. I mean, I'm not saying it's totally original. Not few things in Tarantino movies are. But in terms of putting that in front of people's eyes, like in terms of all the posturing that happens in this movie and all the tough guy shit, that's the shit that stuck with me on this viewing. I, I, 100%. I hear you. I think the film also deconstructs it, though, because we are reminded that both Kai. You've kind of derailed me a little bit, but I'll just. Well, I'm going to push back since I'm derailing you anyway. I think that that opening segment, I I disagree. It's awful. It's some of the worst shit I've seen in a movie. I think I think some of the dialogue is ridiculous and terrible in terms of of its suggestion. But the idea of what it's establishing in terms of the relationship with these these characters, like Mr. Blonde doing the fake gunshot at Harvey Keitel in that, and the way that it's kind of already setting up uh, Harvey Keitel and Mr. Pink against each other when it comes to the tipping conversation, I think that all plays into the later relationships that you see. Okay. This is, you're you're nailing it, Doug, and you cut me off too soon. All right. Another another utterly tedious part when it comes to the script is. The commode story, the fucking story that Tim Ross character uses to sell himself to these gangsters. He's doing a Quentin Tarantino impression. This is how Quentin Tarantino tells a story. And this happens in a lot of the movies. Whenever people go on these long tirades, they just start acting like Quentin Tarantino because this is some shit that Tarantino would tell you. And they do it. Oh, they almost do it in his voice. And it's fucking awful. That being said, the cutting and the editing of the sequence that is the commode story is goddamn brilliant. And that is in essence, Reservoir Dogs. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I agree with you. There is character moments that are essential to the rest of the movie in that breakfast scene. The two long ass sections of it are awful and stupid. And that is for me, what I came away from Reservoir Dogs with is like, there's a lot going on here. So for example, I agree there's this tender moment between these people, but also it's like a tender moment between enemies. And one of the things yeah. that this movie does that I think is really good, it's not entirely unique, but I think it is is it at least wasn't happening a lot at the time, is it really establishes that um, criminality and police action, it's a war between two people, two sides that are bad. These are bad people. Yeah. The cops are bad. The criminals are bad. There are no heroes. The closest you get to a positive, the joke we made earlier, 
is Steve Buscemi's character because he's at least rational. He's the one guy who's like, hey, this makes sense. We should do this because it makes sense. He's self-interested. He's selfish. We know that from the tipping speech sure. that he's selfish. Mm-hmm. But at least he's acting in a way that like logically makes sense. The police – this isn't making any sense. The police have now uh, fucking sacrificed the lives of not only officers but plenty of innocent people all to get Joe. Yeah. Thus showing they are monsters. The criminals are racist, sexist, and also kind of monsters, you know. Yeah. Though Harvey Keitel seems to have some morals, he still sucks overall. And yeah, I was reading something. It's like it's, a, it's the difference between Harvey Keitel's character and Michael Madsen's is the difference between a, a sociopath and a psychopath. Sure, sure, sure. But well, let me let me say it this way for me though personally is that uh, I think Tarantino might not intend it this way. Watching it. What I get from Madsen is, yes, he seems utterly unhinged, but also, um, is there something he's? I, I I just wonder about his, uh, his mental health in general, right? Like I was watching it, thinking, I wonder what happened to this guy, which is maybe me being too compassionate, but I actually think that, like, I really think like eh, something's going on here more than you know he's just having fun. Like I really think there's like something he's working out, whereas. Kaitel, it's not that he, he's not crazy. I mean, he talks about cutting someone's pinky finger off to get him to yeah. tell him what he wants to know. But like, he's learned to be he's learned to be uh, a certain amount of intense and lawless for a reason. He's it's useful in certain scenarios, right? But he like has told himself, real or not, that he doesn't enjoy it. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I do think though, one of the things to keep in mind with that tenderness moment, which I think is played very real, is that we get to see over time that part of his connection to Tim Ross character is that he feels guilty. He feels responsible and that responsibility is eating him up even more than whatever connection he has to this guy, which is there. But I think it's, it's heightened by this sentimentality and his own guilt. And the thing about Buscemi's character is he's utterly immoral, but in a war between immoral sides being utterly without connection and human you know, any sort of human compassion is the only rational way to be like, like the, if, if you're going to have compassion then don't join a side in this fucking weird shit that they're all involved in, you know? Uh, but all that stuff that works doesn't hide that. Like, I think the racism is deployed to be edgy. It doesn't really feel very effective. Same with the sexist stuff in it that like, it starts off as like sort of character stuff. And then after a while, it just gets really tedious. And I think that Tarantino actually enjoys that shit more than he wants to admit. And I think that a lot of the dialogue just gets kind of wearisome for me, even while other aspects I still find just really fucking well executed. And in the end, one of the things I feel about this movie that no one is going to say, but I will say is one of the reasons it got popular, same with Pulp Fiction, it's just 70s bullshit. The reality is the 80s ate the 70s, right? Yeah. The Mm -hmm. 70s didn't eat the 60s. The 70s just expanded on stuff that was cool in the 60s. But the 80s came along and went, that decade didn't happen. Fuck you. And just like moved on. And so by the 90s being like, hey, guys, I actually think a bunch of the 70s shit, culture, art, style, movies, uh, music, all this shit from that time was actually kind of cool. I think that was part of the reason these movies took off, as well as some really innovative shit that he does. And again, I get that there's a lot of homage here, but I think when you're operating in a pop culture landscape where no one gets your references, 
doing homage, if that is what you want to accuse him of, is still kind of fucking dangerous because it's different than what anyone else is doing. If everyone's playing swing music, right, and, and everywhere you go there's swing music and you start an actual ska band, someone could say, well, they just sound like the specials. It's like, yeah, but everyone else isn't doing it. So by by stealing from someone in a way that no one else is doing, that's still kind of original in this sort of cultural landscape that we're in. All right. Let me talk about what my th- thoughts are on this film. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, guys, I went on so long. I didn't mean to rant for so long, but I just I have a lot to think about with this movie, honestly. So the thing is, a lot of what you're saying are things that I felt in the past. And I go in different kind of cycles when it comes to this movie. There was a period after the 90s, because in the 90s, I loved it because it was cool and different. It was just that if you were in your late teens in the 1990s, then you were going to love this movie. It just was almost universal. And then in the early 2000s, I started to resent it. I started to like when when stuff like the Boondock Saints came out, which were clearly trying to. I mean, there were a lot of territorial imitators, but like movies that were stylish and had a lot of people making pop culture references and and had a lot of annoying characters. I was like, well, maybe I don't like it. And I started to resent it and dislike it. And I started to. And because Tarantino was such an overbearing personality and let us make the distinction right now. I don't hate Quentin Tarantino, but I find him exhausting and irritating and annoying Mm -hmm. at times. I read his book, Cinema Speculation. I liked it very much. I also read his book version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I thought it was ridiculous. I, I, it, there's just, it, when it's him being him, I can take it. When it's him being someone else, I can't take it. That's just, that's a simplification of it. That said, I love Reservoir Dogs. I love it, and I've the last couple of times I've watched it, I've loved it. I won't say that there's no problems with it. You're exactly right. He's too in love with his own dialogue. But then again, he's doing something literally... That nobody else was doing. All right? It might have been taken from... I mean, it wasn't really. I mean, because it's an amalgam, it becomes something different anyway. Um, but, like, everyone who tried to write like Quentin Tarantino after this movie and True Romance and particularly Pulp Fiction was, were huge hits, they they couldn't do it. And that's the thing. They all that's flamed out. True. No one that's could figure true. it out. Right? And it's just like, it's not just talking about fucking cartoon characters or serial or, or, or whatever or old movies. It's about doing it and then revealing things about the characters as you're doing it. And sometimes he goes too far, particularly in this era and sometimes in Pulp Fiction as well. But the very fact that he knew that it wasn't just talking about these things, that it was about developing the character as they talk about these things. You know, when when Tim Roth's character compares Joe to the thing from Fantastic Four, that's a great fucking comparison. He does look like the fucking thing. It makes total sense that he would say it. And it is but, a cultural okay, reference okay, that people would okay, understand. Okay, okay. You didn't find yourself when they cut to him in his apartment and there's immediately a Silver Surfer poster on the wall. You didn't roll your fucking eyes? I didn't roll my eyes when I saw it in the 90s. I don't roll my eyes now. Like, it feels like a character detail that would be that's more Tarantino than it is that person. But that's fine. That doesn't bother me because, especially at that time, I didn't know that much about it. Destiny turns on the radio didn't come out yet, so I didn't know anything about it. it, it there are elements that are always going to be a little cheesy but like the fact that this isn't more self-indulgent that's what blows me away the thing that the word that no one would ever use with tarantino is restrained but think about what he did here he not only gave up one of the central roles to give to an actor who was way better than he could ever be in that role he gave himself yeah he gets that moment at the very beginning of the movie he's barely in the fucking thing right he's out of it his entire even though he was he was desperate to be an actor and he tried to become an actor afterwards and people mocked him mercilessly and not for no reason Right. He was he knew what was better for the movie and he makes a lot of decisions 
that I think are better for the movie because he knows at the end of the day that's what's the most important. And I think that is what separates him from a lot of his contemporaries who tried to do the same thing. We're going to move on to that topic about the plagiarism thing. This yeah. thing this thing got exhausted in the 90s. I don't I'm, I don't want to go after Mike White who is a friend of the show and we've had him on the Eric Roberts show, but like he was one of the people who popular, popularized that argument because he made like a, a an essay video essay about all the the, the homages or stealing that Quentin Tarantino did. It feels like from 2023 perspective, it's ludicrous that that was ever a conversation. A because Tarantino has continued to be successful and has made movies that I think are actually better than the ones that we're talking about now. I loved, I really, I know that, I, I know that you're not high on Tarantino's recent movies. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood might be his best movie. Um, and I really, really like it. And I've liked a lot of his recent movies kind of generally. I, you know what, you know what's funny? I almost agree with you about yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think a lot of it works, but again, there are a couple parts of it that I think are really stupid that really annoy the shit out of me. And, uh, Honestly, the amount to which they annoyed me is how I've become more annoyed with other of his movies that I used to love more. Because I thought, what is it about this? They just really bummed me out. And then I was rewatching other things and was like, you know, this part is stupid too. What the fuck, man? <laughs> and like, at this point, I think I, I haven't revisited everything, but I'm still pretty high on both Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. Uh, but everything else is like, Again, I don't actually think any of them are bad, but they have gone down from the place of honor I once had them in, for sure. I, I'm a higher on Django Unchained than almost anybody else. And I understand that in terms of the problems you're talking about and the indulgence, it's worse than that than maybe any of his other ones. But I also feel like it's a response to it in some ways. Uh, and it feels like he exercised a lot of his shittier tropes in that and that he hasn't been leaning as heavily on them since but maybe that's just my perspective and it's it, it's you know we'll, we'll have a the ability to grasp his entire cinematic career pretty soon at least according to himself but just going back to this idea in the 90s people talked about tarantino's ripping off hong kong movies he's ripping off 70s movies and it wasn't always easy to see the movies that he was ripping off so you would see these compilations like look he took this from this and this from this and this from this and specifically, Ringo Lamb's City on Fire, people said that he basically was just copying City on Fire when he made Reservoir Dogs. I mean, there's nothing to it. But you watch City on Fire, and it's nothing like Reservoir Dogs. Because what makes Reservoir Dogs Reservoir Dogs, even though it is that kind of, of, of uh, central plot of the cop you know, working within the criminals undercover, it's the dialogue that was revolutionary. That's the thing that people took away. Yeah, look, it's all of it together. But like when you watch City on Fire, you don't feel like, hey, I'm watching Reservoir Dogs right now. I'm watching these characters play out exactly as they did. It is a movie that obviously strong, strongly influenced it. But man, oh man, talk about overstated. Talk about overstating that Pulp Fiction because uh, because Samuel L. Jackson takes that uh, quote from the Sonny Chiba trailer that that movie is ripping off. It's like he's just he he. It's not even like a mashup or a remix. It's just that he thinks a lot of stuff is cool and he wants it in his movie. So he puts it in his fucking movie. Who cares? But fucking I think Godard I, did the same. Scorsese does the same. But don't you think the the people who make those arguments they just don't like the stuff that is originally his? Like what they're not saying is that all the things that he brought that are him and not something else, I don't like, and so therefore I don't like the thing. Because that's yeah, I think that's sort of the underlying commentary there is that what is his they don't enjoy and to be fair i'm kind of mixed on that like i i think that there are aspects he brings to it that have that get on my nerves a little bit 
but sure. uh, but but I think that that is the real thing, and it's not this idea that like he stole from all these people because, as you said, this is the other thing I don't understand. Like everyone is stealing. Like who's not? St- like I don't know this idea. In order to make something that would truly be pure originality, you have to go into some strange, uh, you know. Uh, abstract space that isn't even a movie anymore. You know, like people are borrowing from each other constantly. And I don't know why that in and of itself is a reason to discount him, especially when like I'll go for you, for me, I just said, I don't think actually any of his movies are bad. I just don't love them as much as I did. As a person, this dude fucking sucks, man. Yeah. Like, this guy yeah. is the goddamn worst in a lot of ways. Uh, not as bad as some other people actually, but yeah, I mean, but like, it's still it's, pretty it, bad. It, in the kind of circles that we hang out in, he's he like he he he's just he's just a really irritating person, right? But he's not bad. Well, as I in, mean, he was kind of abusive on set a yeah, bunch of times, certainly. And, and he fucking defended Polanski, and he only recanted yeah. a couple years ago. So, like, I mean, I mean he, he recanted. We know a lot of people, including Guillermo del Toro, Tilda Swinton, right, uh, and and others that we really like who did not recant after that fact. Oh, but to be fair, his defense, like what a lot of people do, which is bullshit. At least he had a full-throated defense. But his full-throated defense was a thing a monster would say, which is that yeah, she absolutely. wanted it, which is like that's that's worse than these people who are going, you know, he he regrets it and he spent his time away. So like I get it that those people are basically uh, uh, sort of splitting the hair a little bit to some extent because they they are also ignoring the crime. But still, what he actually said was gross and sexist. Well, and I, I mean, think let's, that's let's... more what he's apologizing for. Uh, I don't think yes. he's apologizing for defending Polanski. He's apologizing for what he said on Howard Stern. Yeah. And a lot of people have said shit on Howard Stern that they regret because uh, that's what Howard Stern does. He wants you to say shit that is going to make him popular. And also, Tarantino yeah. was a lot cockier in the fucking That's also true. Yes, than, it's, than yes, he yes, is yes. now. I think he has, he has calmed down a little bit. And he... I, I don't listen to his podcast, so I don't know what he's like on that. I do know that as of the time we were recording this, he recently did an episode that was just eulogizing a fake character that he made from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That sounds interminable, but whatever, right? All I go- want to say in regards to how he um, doesn't attribute, I guess, I mean, like, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put up, oh, this was taken from this movie no, on the that's screen. Stu- as that's the it? dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. But, like, it's it the idea that. Martin Scorsese went to movies constantly as he was growing up, was obsessed with movies. But the way that Tarantino grew up with the ability to watch movies over and over on video and to be able to get international cinema in a way that that you wouldn't be able to get. The fact that the movies that he was obsessed with were considered lower tier B movies, you know, cult movies, horror movies, you know, action movies, that sort of shit. The way that he saw movies was so different than a lot of the filmmakers that were making movies at that time period. It's hard to you know, get across just how different Reservoir Dogs felt and the way that he was taking all these influences. But the fact is, it would be different if he was just straight up remaking City on Fire and and that's all it was. But it's like, if it's a thousand movies, then it's then it's something new. Then it's something different at that point. Then it's girl talk, right? Then it's a real, it's, it's, it is a completely different property. And I just feel like all of that got so overblown. But you are exactly right, which is that they just don't like him. They don't like what he brings to the table. So now let's come up with a reason to hate him even more because people like that stuff. People like that stuff that he's bringing to the table as well. So what else can we attack? That feels really disingenuous to me. I do think there's a certain amount of resentment too, which is that, uh, to be fair, uh, there was an attitude uh, uh, towards the end of the 90s into the 2000s that like 
we need Tarantino to show us the way through cult yes. films of the 70s. Absolutely. He has to be the guy who tells us which Hong Kong films and which exploitation films and which horror films are the ones that we should be watching. And that was a real attitude. And so I think there were people who were as big of film fans as him, if not more so, who came to resent him a little bit. And they came to resent what he represented in the culture, which was often give me – imagine the sort of person who – found that one copy of Death Race 2000, right? Mm -hmm. But didn't want to know anything more about uh, Paul Bartel or, uh, or uh, uh, oh, my brain just went away. But David Carradine or? No, the producer, you know. Oh, Roger Corman. Roger Corman, right? Like that, that's a person, right? And, and, and that they, they found this one little trinket of weirdness and then they're going to wear it like a, like a, like a badge. In 2023, I don't mind that. That's fine. If that's who you want to be, that's great. But in the 90s, a lot of people were reaching into a certain kind of nostalgia, which continued on through the 2000s. I shouldn't just leave it in the 90s. That like made you cooler than everyone else because you knew this thing, right? Like the people who actually went out and found uh, Vanishing Point or uh, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, right? Like who were like, I know what he's referencing in this because I'm aware whatever. Meanwhile, there are people who just like didn't like this guy's movies who already knew his reference points and they right. felt like they weren't getting the respect that they deserve. And like, I get like, it's, it's weird. Cause I empathize with how they feel. However, you can't just rely on resentment. I would rather see a more full throated criticism of the filmmaking than some sort of thing. Like also he borrows from other people. It's like, yeah, okay. He does. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like that doesn't, it's, you know, it's, uh, a new rock band comes out and someone notices that they have riffs that remind them of Van Halen. Well, unless it's a direct copy, I don't give a fuck. So they like Van Halen. Like, I don't know. I don't understand this idea that like um, something gets popular and we can see the influences that that person has. That doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. But again, maybe this is because I have never been in a space where I thought that all art had to be utterly original. I think it's just a recombination of influences for me, at least. You're also setting yourself up for potential failure, right? If Greta Van Fleet makes songs that sound like Led Zeppelin and people listen, it's like, oh, this is just a worse version of Led Zeppelin. That's not going to work for them, right? Even though they found success, that's a really valid criticism that it, right. it's just shittier versions of something. But when Tarantino was doing it and it's just like, well, he took a lot of kind of, forgive this, low art. And he combined them and made something that had huge mainstream success. This is in particular Pulp Fiction as opposed to Reservoir Dogs. It's just like people are like, well, shouldn't he have given credit and some sort of compensation to what he took from? It's like, fuck, man. Like, what is he supposed to do? It's a thousand movies. It's everything he saw. He probably doesn't even remember where a lot of that shit comes from. Yeah. I want to get your quick take on something, Liam, which is something I've been thinking about lately is how Bruce Lee is presented in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What do you think about that? Um... I, you know, I see people going back and forth on it. I don't need to know. I mean, to be like, let me let me give a full throated argument to the side that I don't necessarily feel, which sure. is that there are people who are like, it's not fair because Bruce Lee was like invincible and this guy wouldn't have a chance against Bruce Lee. <laughs> I don't know if that's a full throated defense or not. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a very fair defense generally. I, can I can I get can I get to my point, hey. Doug? Uh, I'm going to. I'm not. I'm not saying that these people are are totally wrong, only in that I have seen footage of Bruce Lee punching a dude as big as as the Brad Pitt character is 
from an inch away and that person flying back. And this was not a stunt guy. This is like a real person who was trying to make Bruce Lee look stupid. And Bruce Lee knocked this guy back a couple feet. So the man was impressive. I get it. My criticism of that scene has nothing to do with whether Bruce Lee would have won a fight or not. I don't think I understand why it's in the movie. And in fact, the entire Brad Pitt arc of that movie is fucked, actually. Like, he's kind of the hero of the movie, and he's a wife murderer who... Mm uh harasses some hippies who we know who we know are awful but like the movie doesn't give us enough context to understand his violence and i don't know that he has a reason for his violence he doesn't know they're going to murder sharon tate at some point he just knows that he doesn't like them and so like the idea that he's kind of like the heroic figure in the movie fucking bums me out it's it's like one of the aspects of the movie that i don't like whereas uh, with that movie, what I love is the pacing and the way the story, like it, I think there's a lot about the movie that is in some ways superior to other movies he's made in a technical sense. I hate the Brad Pitt. I like that movie would only work for me emotionally is if after he, you know, stopped the Manson family, he was arbitrarily killed by some other person I liked more Then I'd be like, ah, perfect justice. I like this movie now because uh, he sucks. He fucking sucks. And I don't, these- I don't really understand. I mean, they come in with knives talking about how they're going to kill. I mean, like, no, he harasses, he harasses them at the ranch, Doug. He, beats he doesn't harass the them. He, 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 he's at a ranch of someone that he knows. And there's a bunch of hippies there acting strange. And he's really curious. And he figures that they probably killed him. That's what he's thinking. seriously i think you just like tough men i've thought this for a while and so now you're now you're into this this guy sucks he is oh i don't disagree i think the the white murdering stuff the white i mean they do leave it uh, until the book they leave it kind of open whether he actually killed his wife or not but yeah it's did he he kill his wife yeah he killed his wife yeah this this dude sucks i don't mean the, the the this is what i don't like about the movie is that i think for I don't think what some people feel, which is like, uh, you know, this is Tarantino's defense of traditional masculinity, which a lot of people felt that way. Uh, I don't feel that. I just think he thinks it's funny that this like gritty, possibly nefarious man is the one who's going to step in in his story and stop this this crime that kind of ruined America to some extent. Although, again, I'm kind of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, more inclined to think there were a lot of other things going wrong than just the Manson family murders. But, oh, sure. But right. I, I mean, but, it's, but, like, it's like it's like stopping JFK assassination, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. No, but I still think it's just supposed to be. He sets up impossible relief, right? Like right. something that you can't have, and and he, I don't think he makes more of it. Like this is going to solve the the difficulties with humanity that are going to happen in the 1970s i think he's just like hey these people suck like these were awful fucking people i mean you remember the response to that fucking movie how people are like he just he 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 was just he he loves violence against women so much which again i'm not even disagreeing i think it goes too far in in the hateful eight but in, in this movie like people are like why was he treating these hippies so badly? I'm not talking about what you're saying, but specifically in those final sequences. Why does he take such pleasure in the violence against them? It's like, because they're like legitimately evil. <laughs> they're crazy cult members who are going to try to kill a pregnant woman that very night. I mean, I don't know. It's a movie, right? I don't forget I, that see, when I'm watching for, for, for me, I found those takes frustrating because they were so disconnected from history. But I also think 
Why has it got to be? Bo- I I think it being this Brad Pitt character is stupid. It was a stupid thing. There should have been a different character who came in oh. and did it. Let let us stick back with Reservoir Dogs. You're just right. For a You're second. right. We should. Yes, yes, yes. I just want to say that I agree with you. I think that his love for using the N word comes from a place of like like oh I'm being so naughty that sort of shit. I also think that he wants to have his cake and eat it too because he makes these characters too cool and relatable while also telling us, oh, they're bad guys, so they can say the shit that they would say in real life. You can't make us love them at the same time, and that's what he does. He makes us love them a little too much for the kind of shit that they're getting into. Well, and that- so, sometimes I think he he does this because he thinks there's that people like this are very cool, but he has yes. to remind you that they're terrible because that's why he's not one of them. It's not that he is... Because I see this happen a lot, you know, unfortunately, going to shows, you meet people, some of whom are scary monsters who hurt people. Yeah. And sometimes people romanticize those people, and they want to understand why they aren't those people. And I think for him, it's like, well, they're like, they're bad dudes, and they're kind of cool or whatever, but they're bad dudes, and I would never be that guy. And I just think it's a weird take, because it's like, just show them being bad. We don't need to also make them sexy, unless that's what the movie's about. Because it could be, because you know what? They're, I actually tend to believe, and maybe maybe I, this makes me different from Tarantino, there are criminals who aren't all racist, sexist monsters sure. who are are actually, there are criminals who actually just chose a, a way to make money that maybe doesn't fit into society, but they're not terrible people. They might even make bad decisions and still not be well, terrible people. But he makes was, them actual monsters all the time, but, but also sexy and cool. That's what's fu- the fucked up thing. And this was sort of the Rosetta Stone for me is the fact that Edward Bunker is one of the actors in this movie. Edward Bunker, yeah, yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. real life criminal, right? He's the worst actor in this by a country fucking mile, but it only has like two lines, so it doesn't really matter. But having him there, you know, char- the character John Voight was based on from Heat. So he knows a real criminal. And even though uh, Edward Bunker was kind of critical of like the idea like you'd never have a heist where people didn't know each other. I mean, he was critical about the reality of what's going on here. But obviously, he knows enough about how real criminals are to uh, to try to emulate, you know, if you're going to say, oh, these are the kind of this is the way that people like this talk, then there's also a little bit of empathy built into that. Right. Because you have a real life criminal who reformed and became like a, a writer and all that shit in the actual cast playing one of these people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Who's the who's the who gives the best performance in Reservoir Dogs? I mean, honestly, I, I, it feels for me like a three-way tie between uh, Buscemi, Roth, and uh, Keitel. Those are just my favorite performances. I like Madsen, but it's it's kind of one note, right? Which is the character. Like, I don't know that he's doing anything wrong, but he doesn't do a lot more than just be that character, you know? Um, I will say, last night was the first time that I didn't find Nice Guy Eddie annoying. Uh, previously, I just really didn't love that but watching it last night i kind of thought he's really like he feels like a real person more than yeah i think that's i think maybe that's that's kind of sold me more in his performance last night and kaitel used to be my favorite performance in the movie i think on this watch when he's upset in the warehouse he has trouble modulating He's, he, again, he has some of the best moments in the movie, like just truly magical stuff. But after a while in the warehouse, he's just like, oh, 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 oh. And you're just like, all right, guy. All right. Come on. That part where he's yelling down. at Mr. Blind, he's like, you almost got me killed. Asshole. 
so ridiculous. I, I mean, he's playing it so big, like Shakespearean big. And I actually kind of like that. I will say, and you're going to be upset about this, Liam. I think Tim Roth is, its he's a great actor. I think his American accent is bad enough that I find it distracting all the way through Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I feel I, interesting. I can feel him trying to sound American, and like that part where you're, you're where he's like repeating the commode story. If it not only does it feel like a Tarantino impression, it feels like him just barely holding on to the accent, and especially when he's like crying out in pain, which that must be so hard to try to hold on to an accent. Like why he's just getting very kind of froggy and stuff. Um, like his the intensity and the emotion of the performance is terrific. I just don't by him as an American. And uh, it's something I find more distracting every time I watch it. I think Kaitel is great. I think Steve Buscemi, this might be like the performance of his career. He's so He is very good. He is very good. I I think he moved into my favorite. I get what you're saying about the accent. I guess I have, like I've, the, the number of times I've said to my friends, I'm dying here. You know, like that. We, the way he says it to the other cop, where he's like, "I'm dying, I'm fucking dying." The, like that shit. It's like that's so shit, that's, awkward. That like yeah. I've I've made fun of it for so long that I don't care. Any, it doesn't bother me anymore. I just expect it, and now I'm focused on. I think he actually is acting his ass off. Yeah. Uh, even in again, the least favorite part for me of his performance is him being Quentin Tarantino for a whole sequence, but he's doing Quentin Tarantino very fucking well. Like it's, it's almost a mirror in a way. And it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. That part. That moment before he leaves to go do the, the score, I think it might be the score, but when he's heading out and meeting up with nice guy, and he stops and looks in the mirror and he says, you know, you're super fucking cool. They don't know anything like that is a great moment. That's well acted, but that's like, I can feel his accent through it. It just doesn't no, I, feel like I understand. I understand. Uh, they should have just let him have a British accent. Who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? I say that ninety nine point nine percent of the time. It's like he's so he's a, he moved here fucking ten years ago. He's a he's a criminal. He wait. I mean, there's lots. Of, well, no. People, I mean, there's there's lots of ways to do people it. People have. I mean, it's accents. hard to make him a cop, though, right? <laughs> no, I don't think that's hard. Either. I don't. I people have accents. I don't think it's yeah, that weird. He visited actually. his family in England last year, and he picked up the fucking accent. Whatever. Um. So so uh, who gives the the worst performance in the movie? Outside of Edward Bunker, who's not even... I mean, he's not really an actor, really. I mean, that's actually hard to say. Huh. I mean, Tarantino's bad, but I feel like that's like... Obviously, that doesn't... That's... Yeah. I, I don't know. I This is weird. I think maybe Joe? Hmm, interesting. Well, just in the sense that he just says stuff. He's not acting. He's just saying stuff. Like, he just <laughs> has a cool voice and he looks weird. That's it. Like, he doesn't emote ever in the movie like he gets mad but i bet you he was just mad in real life like i don't know there's there's nothing about him he's but i don't know that he needs to do much more than what he does so i don't know uh, that oh. part where he's getting pissed off at at steve Buscemi not wanting to be mr pink i think he does he's so good in that part. <laughs> that's so funny i don't care about that at all <laughs> no i, I you, maybe there are no weak before i mean there are weak performances and tarantino and edward bunker are probably amongst them but it's a really good ensemble and it's you know, this script was hot at the time. You know, notoriously, Tarantino didn't know how to write a script in, like, the, the format that people expect a script to be. But because it got passed around and the right people saw it, it became one of those ones, like, people were talking about. They knew that this was going to be a great movie, which is why they were able to get Harvey Keitel on board. And actors wanted to be in this project. So it's not like he had his pick of – but, you know, when you see True Romance, right, and how, like, 
every small role has a famous person in it. It's because everyone was so high on the scripts that Tarantino was putting out that they could get these high-level actors, Natural Born Killers being the same sort of thing, right? And, I mean, this became even more of a thing later when it was like, oh, Tarantino can also revive the career of people whose careers have fallen in hard times because they've done a bunch of garbage shit. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think it's a really good ensemble cast. I think him as a director is so weirdly confident. Just the idea that they had this budget for the music in the movie uh, and they put almost all of it towards getting that Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with you song because he knew it was going to be right for that scene. Like, who has the who has the balls or maybe the overconfidence or the cockiness to do that when people are like, like, he said that someone offered him the millions to make this movie if they would cast his girlfriend, like the guy who was given the money. His girlfriend is one of the gangsters. And he turned it down, of course. They considered it, but he turned it down. I don't know, man. Like, if it was me and I had this script and I knew it was going to be something, but I just needed the money and that could make me, like, make my career if I was able to get this made, turning down shit must be the hardest thing to do. I think the vibe, I think you are, and I get why, because it leads to a certain amount of creativity. I think you are much more impressed with this man's ego than I am. Like, when, like, like for you, there's so much restraint here. And I'm like, yeah, this is like, restraint on like a sun o record like compared to other people there's no restraint at all like i i guess i just am less uh less uh interested in the ways that he is able to exercise his ego all over his i wasn't impressed by it until i saw all the people try to do it try to do the exact same thing and flame out and fail entirely you know, maybe that's what it is, really. It's just that they think that it's it looks easy when you watch it and then you try to do it and it's impossible. I, yeah, I, I think I'm just in a place where I am more like I am impressed with his ability. And yet there's something in every movie that I'm like, Bleh. and I just I think that's what I end up with is like. I don't hate the dude. I like him more than a lot of people who have issues, but I just wish there wasn't a moment in almost every film, I think. I don't know. It's been a while since I watched some of these films where I think, oh, I don't like that. You know, and granted, not to say that he needs to make a perfect movie, but there's just something that just feels like, I don't know, just something that's very him that I feel like derails the movie a teeny bit for me, you know, that just doesn't quite work, you know? And, so and sometimes it it's literally out. him showing up that derails the movie. Yeah, that's part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pulp, the, the moment he shows up in Pulp Fiction is, uh, it takes one of what could be one of my favorite parts of the movie and makes it really stupid. And I hate his presence in Pulp Fiction. It bums me out. Even when Harvey Keitel shows up and it's, he's fun and charming, yeah, then yeah. Quentin Tarantino still has to say things. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I don't ruining Keitel's moment. Let's let's go into Steve Buscemi as Mr. Mr. Pink. We've talked about it at length at this point. I think he's the best performance in the movie. I think he holds the movie together to a great extent because he's a great counterpoint to Harvey Keitel's kind of bombastic performance. Yes. I know that we people use the word Weasley to describe Tarantino, but I, I'm sorry, uh, to describe Buscemi. I feel like that was established here for a lot of people, like because he looks almost a little bit rat-like. Again, I'm not talking about how his look, like everything about him is kind of compact and small. And it, it, the fact that he has that motor mouth way of speaking, it's like he was born to deliver Tarantino's dialogue specifically. And it's strange to think that people connect Buscemi with Tarantino, even though he only shows up in this and briefly in Pulp Fiction. It's not like they've, they haven't been joined at the hip in a way that like Samuel L. Jackson has throughout his career. What do you think about his performance here? Uh, what is it about it that people responded to? I mean, he's great. 
he really manages to there are multiple times where he is saying the thing that needs to be said, but he's saying it in a way where you understand why people aren't listening to him. And that might sound simple, but it's actually really fucking important because he's the constant reminder that a lot of this doesn't make sense and that people are making bad decisions. Uh, He's also funny. You know, he delivers this, he, you know, his, tipping speech i don't think i don't i mean who knows maybe tarantino hates tipping as well but i always remember reading that that was supposed to be echoing like something tarantino actually believed but like he gives carby Keitel such a strong counter argument that it feels like well which side i mean that's one of the things is hey when they say these shitty things are they just quoting and spouting what tarantino believes it's always like it's like you that is a mistake a lot of people make i will have i do have to say though that his belief that uh, waitresses make minimum wage was wrong then and it's still fucking wrong. Oh yeah, totally, totally, totally. But all I was going to say is Tarantino doesn't have to believe the speech to Tarantino the speech, right? Like I, I, I'm sure there are multiple speeches in Tarantino films that he doesn't really believe in, but he's making an argument and if the person doesn't know how to do it, it's it can sound like Tarantino and when Buscemi does this dialogue, he doesn't sound like Tarantino to me, even though I think Maybe Tarantino does not like tipping. I don't know what it, what I don't know if that's true or not, but he still sounds like his character. Yeah. And I think that's hard. It's transformative, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's hard to do. I mean, I think other actors try to do some of these lines that are clearly Tarantino-isms and they fail a little bit or they, they don't at least make it fit the character. And that whole section, while I think it is kind of stupid in some ways, uh he owns it as an actor and he that you believe that character is doing that and then it fits with the character for the rest of the fucking movie where he sort of has this way of being that makes sense um and kind of shows that like a lot of people are making decisions in the movie around loyalty and i don't just mean kaitel with his loyalty to Tim Roth, who's turns out to be a cop, but even like the inclusion of Mr. Blonde, right? Like, this guy just got a jail. You yeah, don't know yeah. where he's at. He doesn't need to be on this fucking team. And he kind of makes things harder, you know? Like, I, I, I just think there's a lot of like people with undeserved loyalties in the film. And Buscemi is not loyal to anyone. He's not even loyal to these poor women at the fucking restaurant who just need a little extra money yeah, to yeah, get by. That's right. And for whatever reason, I mean, you could argue he's that he's completely like, self interested. That's exactly yeah. right. And and in some sense, maybe this is uh this is a uh, Tarantino's defense of Ayn Rand. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> but there it is. I do think that you got at something earlier, which is that because Mister Blonde just got out of jail, and even though Nice Guy Eddie is mocking him and making you know like like suggesting that he was raped in prison and stuff like that, that there's clearly like real trauma that he experienced there that he is absolutely just repressing the hell, and maybe that is one of the things that pushed him to. When the alarm went off, that he just started going crazy shooting everybody, right? I mean, yeah, like, this I, could I, all be connected. I don't want to over-intellectualize it or defend him too hard because he really is the monster of the movie in a lot of different yeah, ways. Yeah. But the like the thing that came across to me now is that usually when someone is this fake, like he's just fi- – he is fake, right? The only time yeah, he's, he's playing a cool guy character. Yeah, the only time he seems to be himself is when he's doing the most awful thing in the movie, right? And so like uh, that – says trauma to me people act like that because of trauma in my mind so i don't know i i don't want to make that a huge thing people might disagree that's fine if you disagree but to me i that's what i read off of it was like you know was he like this before prison or after prison and i I don't know it's hard to say right 
Yeah. And, and I also want to say, because we were just talking about Michael Madsen, one of our other podcasts, and I went on him pretty hard. I actually think he's really, really good in this. And I, you're right. It is kind of one note, but he can also, there is a couple of different notes, right? When we see him being playful with nice guy, Eddie, and them wrestling around and stuff like that. And even him in the diner at the beginning, even though it's all variations on this kind of fake cool guy character, I think he does a really good job in it in a way that he's not always great later. Honestly, he's just one of those actors, and he, there's a few of them who are just only really great in Tarantino movies. He's really good in Kill Bill too, um, and and yeah. he, I mean, that's the other thing that Tarantino doesn't get enough credit for. You're right. Sometimes they just feel like they're doing Tarantino, but it's not like a Kevin Smith movie where every character talks like Kevin Smith. You get different variations, right? You get different colored, uh, well, colors literally in this one. Like Steve Buscemi and Harvey Cartel, Harvey Cartel are distinct different characters. Yes. And and they don't just talk the same way either. Anyway, I think Steve Buscemi is is unbelievable in this. In some ways, like he built his entire career on this on this role, especially because of people returning to it after the success of Pulp Fiction, but uh, I mean this is kind of in terms of the um the entrance way for the reason that a podcast like this could exist, it's really Reservoir Dogs. So Liam, with that in mind, I've decided to give you a treat on our next episode. Okay. <laughs> Where we will be covering I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, oh, directed God by Dennis it. Dugan from the year 2007. Plot is two straight single Brooklyn firefighters pretend to be a gay couple in order to receive domestic partner benefits. Liam, I've never seen this movie before. I know it stars Adam Sandler and his Adam Sandler crew. Kevin James, I believe, is uh, one of the stars as well. Uh, have you ever seen I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry? God damn it. No, of course not. At the time, I remember thinking, this sounds like a terrible movie, and I believe its reputation has just gotten worse. We have not really dug into the Adam Sandler verse and Buscemi's connection to it. Instead of going easy with Billy Madison or The Wedding Singer or something like that, I was like, yeah, let's get into the muck. We went from Reservoir Dogs right into the muck. Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Looking forward to it? No. You might be pleasantly surprised. I mean, you love Hubie Halloween. I don't know that I loved Hubie Halloween. I did think it was kind of funny. <laughs> if you want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do Fellow Kids or other uh, podcasts we're involved in, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, of course, they can head to cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com uh, for the latest episodes of this show, as well as a whole family of podcasts over there. Um, or they can head to our website, cinemasmorgasport.com, for the archive of not only our Steve Buscemi work, but, you know, uh, Jodorowsky, Vic Diaz, our uh, genre film uh, exploration. We, we do a lot of different topics over there. So sure. head on over to cinemasportsport.com. On social media, you can find Cinepunk, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we are on Twitter at Cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can find the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord every Monday on your podcast provider of a choice. Why don't you leave us a review? If you want to tell a friend about Cinema Smorgasbord, our podcast devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, and some of the other ones that Liam said as well. We'd always appreciate it. I, Doug Tilly, was recently a guest on the Junk Filter podcast, uh, Jesse Hawkins' great podcast, talking about the Tubi streaming service. You can do search uh, for that out there it's junk filter pod on twitter or you can find that on my twitter feed at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y or you can follow liam on twitter as well at liam rules that's r-u-l-z liam that time i said mine first and your second what do you think about that <laughs> you're a real artist Doug. <laughs> switching it up a little bit on this episode of how do you do fellow kids but for now we need to take a little break we're going to be back very soon with i now pronounce you chuck and larry good night everyone fuck you doug <laughs>